What is up and welcome to another episode of In The Area Podcast, your weekly source for wisdom nuggets. Today we sit down with David Carley, an orthopedic doctor and partner at the Stedman Clinic Vail, a world-renowned orthopedic clinic in Vail, Colorado. David is the CEO and founder of Greyledge Technologies, a biotechnology company, and a social media influencer. In this episode, you'll learn about regenerative medicine, fitness, and entrepreneurship. Recording live from Vail, Colorado, enjoy today's episode. David, you are the CEO and founder of Greyledge Technologies. Can you tell us a little bit more about this company? So Greyledge Technologies is a parent company to several companies, but we're we're in the cell therapeutics business. So what we do is to take a patient's tissue, either blood or bone marrow, typically. And from that, we create an implantable therapeutic product. So we use a patient's own cells and tissues to treat their problem. And in in my case, we focus mostly on orthopedic medicine because that's my background. But there are other applications in wound care and and nerve injury and uh, cosmetic and sexual dysfunction. And there's a number of other applications that we haven't even broached. And how did you discover this method of, you know, and so, but you're saying you take a part of someone's body and you'll inject it into. Or implant it surgically. Yeah. It was, it was a process. <laughs> you'll see this, you'll see this rep, 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 uh, repetitive theme with me that I just stumble into something and just mm. see it through. But uh, so I was trained traditionally and didn't feel like the tools that we had or I had at my disposal were adequate to treat the problems that I was seeing every day. So it led me to, uh, to start investigating, you know, some alternative pathways and and like what were some of the product the problems that you were well, with? I mean, historically there you know there's all kinds of alternative therapies like acupuncture and um, uh, uh, many many from right. mind body medicine to nutrition supplementation etc. Right, but the people who came to you they had like an issue like they t- tore something in their knee or like what when would you well, see a patient under what conditions? Well, we we were treating common orthopedic problems and and most of the non surgical treatments were steroid-based. And steroids really were developed around World War II. So the technology, in my mind, was antiquated and had never gone through a process of innovation of, hey, someone says, this is old news. We need to do it better. Okay, where do you begin? Where do you start? So we started by, or I started by digging into literature and articles and things like that. And it led me to Munich, Germany, Mm. a colleague of Dr. Stedman's who was using some interesting products in Europe to treat soccer athletes. And the product, which wasn't licensed in the United States, but was licensed in Europe, was basically a, it was a derivative of baby cow blood. They isolate uh, proteins from baby cow's blood and create it into an injectable product and inject it into muscle injuries. And the athletes were doing great. He was a very famous physician in Europe. I was one of the first docs ever to visit his clinic because of Dr. Stedman. So you flew so, out to Munich, Germany. Yeah, two or three times and and observed. And I liked the concept that they were promoting, which was figure out a way, instead of blocking the body with steroids or medications or whatever, figure out a way to work or support, work with or support the body to, to help mend itself or help to stabilize itself. But I knew coming back that we couldn't use those products that I was seeing over there because they weren't licensed in the United States. So mm. we can't do that. So, but I liked the concept, so I started investigating... And I wasn't the only one. There were some other people at the time doing similar work with similar questions. But I found a guy named Peter Everts, who was a Dutch researcher who did his PhD in something called platelet-rich plasma. 
which is where we take platelets from. He did his work in sheep, but where we take platelets from a person and we concentrate those platelets and we reimplant them into an injury, for example. And platelets coordinate the healing process in our bodies under normal circumstances. So they're just taking advantage of the body's healing capabilities and augmenting it by concentrating them and putting them at doses that they couldn't get to ordinarily under normal circumstances. Well, it was really cool and fascinating literature in an animal model. And around that time, uh, myself and a, a number of other colleagues started to kind of dabble in humans with that concept and that very basic product. There were a few medical devices back then that could make this for you. And we were seeing good results. So you would, you would take the platelets out of someone's blood? Right. So if you, if you spin blood against high G forces, it separates and you can go and collect the elements that you want because they have different molecular weights. So they separate out in layers. The machine originally did the work. Greyledge does that now, but the machine originally did, did the work for you. So anyway, being at the Stedman Clinic, we ended up with sexy new therapy. You know, athletes start seeking it out. And, and before you know it, I'm in USA Today or Wall Street Journal or New York Times or whatever for treating some athlete with this incredible new therapy, which really wasn't all that new, but no one was really applying it in that capacity. So I always joke that sexy med tech has this huge uptick and then people realize it's not all that great and it dies. But what happened with, with biologics, starting with PRP, and we'll talk about other things that have evolved since, you know, there was all this press and PR and hype, and it started to come back down to earth, but instead of dying, it leveled off and then started to grow slowly. So it was a more sustainable curve, suggesting it's going to be around for a while, and it was real. Mm -hmm. It wasn't some elaborate placebo or, you know, uh, BS. So we started working with that, but what was happening is the medical devices that made PRP, and we're talking... 10 years ago. And this is platelet-rich plasma? Rich plasma, yeah. So 10 years ago, you would input a blood sample, it would process the sample, and quote-unquote PRP would come in the other end. But we didn't know how many cells. We didn't know if it was good PRP or bad PRP. You were just supposed to inject it into the patient and voila, let the magic happen. And I didn't feel like that was adequate. That was insufficient. And it had its role, but we thought we could do better. And that is what led to Greyledge, which was to take a uh, to apply a new standard to these biologic therapies to say, we need to think of it more like a drug. So we want to know a dose, if you will. So how many cells, what types of cells, how many platelets uh, are we implanting as a therapeutic agent, like a drug, into a tissue? And no one was measuring. So when it worked, I didn't know why it worked. If it didn't work, I didn't know why it didn't work. So in an effort to create more quality control around these products and patients were spending their hard-earned money. This isn't covered by insurance. So we wanted to be able to create a standard whereby we say, okay, this platelet-rich plasma is a good platelet-rich plasma. That'll give the patient a better chance for success. Or this is inadequate. We probably shouldn't use that or draw more blood or change it or add to it or whatever. So that was the original premise is let's just, let's just measure what is in there. Wow. And can you take someone else's plasma and put it in someone else's body. It doesn't need to come from like if I'm if I need this therapy, does it need to come from me? Yeah. So if it's if you think about a blood transfusion, you can cross match, meaning you can test the blood to see if it's compatible with you. That's how normally a blood transfusion works. Okay. So in theory, yes, you could, but the FDA has uh, through their code of federal regulations a million page document. Yeah. Right? They have standards of what we can and can't do in the United States. So they said we can use your tissue to treat you. 
Okay. Uh, and if we follow their certain rules, and we'll get into all the boring details, but if we follow their rules, that doesn't have to go through an FDA approval process. So we're allowed to apply it because the safety uh, or the risk potential on it was very low. You can't reject your own tissue. Um, the only potential issue was infection, which is true of any injection. So it was really low risk profile. So they they allowed the medical community to start working with this stuff, and it has evolved since then. But it seems it seems almost um, as though it should have been recognized way sooner that we ought to probably know what's in there. Right. It's just a good thing to do in general. Now, does it really matter or not? That's what Greyledge is trying to prove out over time. So when you found a Greyledge, you were kind of surprised that this hadn't already, this wasn't already happening, that people weren't. Well, I am now that, you know, we're still really the only company focused on this in this space. But back then, this was snake oil, right? And the premise made a lot of sense to me. But <laughs> so when I went to Dr. Stedman and talked about this, and, you know, we talked about it at length, he was very supportive but none of the other docs really cared. It was kind of, hey, Dave, you go ahead, do your thing. That's cool. We didn't really want anything to do with it, but right. that's fine, right? Do well, your thing, but we're going to focus right. on. Now, today, doctors all over the world use platelet-rich plasma and, wow. and now cell therapies, which are becoming more prominent as well. But, but back then, it was very controversial. And uh, it was a risk because if it didn't work, you know, I was going to be pushing snake oil <laughs> to people and, uh, you know. But yeah, you know, I, I, I was con, I had conviction that it, the, the idea made sense. I saw a similar model work in Europe, and there was enough physiologically there, you know, knowing how the body works to say, yeah, that, that makes sense. Right? Can, can you talk about the process of founding a company? Was it was it something that you had thought of doing before? Like, oh, you know, one day I, I want to start a business, or was it totally just a outgrowth of this realization? No, at first started. So to get back to the medical device concept, so we, we said, oh, we want to know what's in that biologic that we're putting back into the patient. We had to figure out how to do that. There was no playbook. We literally had to create the playbook to do that. So we started from scratch. So it started out creating a laboratory and there was no biologic cell processing laboratory manual. We had to pillage from other laboratories like your hospital laboratory or a, a, a research laboratory and, and take bits and pieces from all these and piecemeal them together into what we thought was a responsibly run lab from a patient safety standpoint. Did you find this process exciting? Were you enjoying the time in, in the initial phases? Yeah, I, I, I must say that I did. It, early on, it's so pure, right? Because you're, you're idealistic. I was, I was a lot younger. <laughs> this is more than 10 years ago. But uh, you're so idealistic, and it's exciting and to see it starting to come together. So when we developed a laboratory, uh, then other docs started using it. And, and, and this is 2010. Yeah, way back when. And then we have a lot of doctors that come and shadow our doctors at the Stedman Clinic. You know, we're pretty well known. And, and other doctors were seeing this. And, and before you get long, people would say, hey, we'd like to be able to do that. So we thought, well, geez, how do, we never really thought this was going to become a company. It was just going to become something to serve our practice and our hospital and our, our group initially. And uh, then we said, well, maybe we, do have a company here. I don't, I don't know. So we started to dig into that and and look to see if we could scale this. And, and it's like McDonald's. Does the hamburger in Arkansas taste the same as the hamburger in California? Could we duplicate the same level of control and quality in another place that we could here? So we said, well, let's give it a try. And we started and did a second one. And before long, we had a bunch of labs in other states. And then I said, oh, crap. I don't know how to run a business. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> no one taught me. I just yeah. kind of intuitive. 
So I, I ended up making the decision. I was initially going to go to MIT and take a full year off and go to business school back because I went to Harvard for my residency. So I, I knew the Boston area well. And uh, we got pregnant at the time with Bruin, my son. And uh, I couldn't take a year off. So I ended up uh, going to the University of Denver. Uh, over two years, I drove to Denver every weekend with a full-time practice and a baby and uh, a, a, business, a business a business that I didn't wow. know how to run. Oh, my gosh. And uh, for it took two years, but I got my MBA, which, um, which was useful. And, you know, it's continued to evolve since we saw transitions from very simple products like PRP into more stem cell type therapies that we do now. And this is over the course of 10 years, which in medicine is not a long period of time. Because things in medicine can take a very long time to develop and evolve. Wow. And you just had to roll with those punches and it's a, it's a rough and tumble road. Yeah. And before we move on, how did you manage your time? Cause I feel like trying to juggle so many things is like, it yeah. sounds, it sounds Herculean. That was easy. Cause I didn't have any time. <laughs> so every day, every second was taken. So it was easy. Like you would wake but, up, uh, like you'd wake up and immediately first thing, you know, checking emails, starting work. Is that how, is that what your life looked like for those two years? Well, so this was one of the tricky parts. You know, I have a responsibility to patients. And, you know, as a doc, and I, I do procedures on patients, and sometimes we do dangerous things to patients. So they deserve, you know, my best, if especially if we're doing an invasive procedure or something like that. So I had to be careful, you know, with all of these other responsibilities that were self-imposed. I, I chose to do them, not to let that slack or slide, right? So that was, when you talk about time management, the bigger challenge was to make sure you know, I wasn't overtired or, I mean, having a baby enough, it can make you exhausted. But having all these juggles, uh, these balls to juggle in the air, my first responsibility was to patients to take the best care of them that I could. And the side hustle, <laughs> right, the side hustle of, of the business and so forth, which was, you know, important to me, had to be the second thing. Okay. It just had to. And even today, as the business has evolved and grown, I still have that challenge of making sure I'm delivering the best I can as a physician while wearing this entrepreneur hat at the same time. And the the world's just kind of merged. It, it's not I do the doctor thing and then I do the business thing. It, it's one now. It's just kind of fluid. Uh, and I've, I've helped. The business has grown and you know we have other people working uh, there now. I don't do everything, but uh, but that was probably the hardest part of uh, of maintaining that because it's quite a responsibility to you know to be a doc and take good care of people and try to help them with whatever issue they're coming in with. Uh, uh, and so looking at you now, like you, for those listening, you can't see him, but you are ripped. You're a very well, you're built guy yeah. and in amazing shape. Yeah. Were you were you like this for the last ten years? Were you always did were you in great shape? You know when all this was going on as well. Well, I was a college athlete, so I was always kind of fitness oriented, but no is the question. It really, to be honest with you, it was, it was really just, there were additional personal goals that I was getting a little older and starting to feel the effects of getting a little older and wanted to see what I could do with my body. But I, I joke with patients that if you went to the cardiologist's office for your heart problem and the cardiologist walked into the room smoking a cigarette and was obese, would you listen to what they have to say? Right. So part of it is I, I enjoy it. It's a, it's, a, it's a personal challenge to stay fit as, as I get older. I'm 49 now. And as long as my body will let me do it, I'll continue to do it. But 
it was looking the part, but also I just like it. I enjoy training and it's good for my mind. It's good for my body. Uh, but as you age, you run into this balance of can training become counterproductive and can it become too much? And I have to be sensitive to that for the same reasons I just spoke about, you know, with all these other responsibilities. Training can take a lot out of you if you're serious about it and you want to look a certain way, you have to do certain things. And that takes work and time and effort and energy. So it has to come from somewhere. Yeah, and you talked about the effect it has on your mind. Like, what, what is that? Do you find that you are a lot more focused on the task at hand when you're in better shape? Yeah, I think that's been pretty well established. I, I always say it's cheaper than therapy um, <laughs> to go to the gym, right? Uh, but a lot of people around here get their exercise outside, and that's great. That works for them. Or some people like endurance sports, like uh, triathlons and so forth. I'm a gym rat. I, I love going to the gym, and it's my thing. And uh, it works for me, but with business, there are so many ebbs and flows. The one constant that I had was challenging myself in that gym every day. Mm. Weight's not going to move itself. So you either do it or you don't. It was very, in a world of, you know, so much uncertainty with the business, that was always a certainty. You go in there, you're going to work hard enough to do what you want to do with your body or not. It was very yes or no. It was very concrete. And that was welcome, right? It was a, it was a safe place for me to be. And I learned that lesson over time. And then to see a result of your hard work, that cause and effect relationship. Because with business, sometimes you don't think you're getting anywhere when actually you are. You don't realize it because you're so immersed and, and, and focused. Yeah, what do you mean by that? Well, I've, I've told some people in the past that, not just with business, but in, in my life and my career, there were times where I thought it was just awful. But those were the times where I was growing and, and uh, accomplishing. I just didn't know it. It didn't feel like it. But that, that was the grind that you had to go through to, to overcome a challenge or or see a vision through. Medical school was the same way, right? It was hard. <laughs> Anybody who says medical school is easy is crazy or a genius. And there are a few of those. But it was, um, people say you have to learn to enjoy that process. Yeah, probably in an ideal world, but sometimes it sucks, right? It's just miserable. But you have to maintain your vision of where you want to go and where you want to be. And even sometimes baby steps, those daily wins, right? So maybe you're not getting your big win, but you can focus on what can I win today? And at times when you're drowning in a sea of negative things that are beating on you, if you can just focus on those little wins from day to day to get you through, to maintain some momentum and fight off that constant negative voice in your head, you're going to fail nine out of 10 businesses fail or eight out of 10 business fail or whatever it is, right? The odds are stacked way against you to succeed, but you do it anyway because you believe in it. Uh, but you have to find those strategies. And I still struggle with it. I mean, there are days when I'm negative. My my wife, <laughs> she has to deal with the brunt of that usually. But but at the end of the day, you either commit to it or you don't, right? And if if you're not fully committed to it, and you're just, you're going to fail likely, but more importantly, you're going to be so beat up and down on the process, you may never try again. So you have to get through those times. You just have to find a way. And over, over the past 10 years, you've been growing the business and 
it's at a point now where it's 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 you, you described it as almost the precipice. You know, it could go. You know, we got we got some dogs upstairs, so it's we're not in a professional recording studio. It's fail. <laughs> it's, it's fail. But um, it's at right now at what you described as the precipice. Can you can you explain where the business is right now? So I bootstrapped the business, and for those that don't know, I self funded the business up until about two years ago. So uh, the business was actually quite profitable early on, while we were very small, and that's rare for a startup. But as we started to grow and scale, any money you make, it's put back into the business basically to, in an attempt to grow and, and not have to take on investors. Plus, this business was a unique one in that it took a long time to proof the concept out, a really long time. It was very slow, and that took a lot of patience. And I don't know that I'm very great at patience, but I learned that. And as we grew and evolved, eventually you start to become the limiting factor of the growth of that business. And that's when you have to think about bringing on help, resources, capital, fundraising, et cetera. And we, over the last couple of years, have just gotten to that point. And now that's starting to accelerate. We're, accelerate. We've uh, just entered into a $15 million fundraise, our first. And we're finishing off securing the first $2.5 million of that this week, hopefully. And then uh, normally you'd go do a roadshow meeting with banks and investors and things like that. But with COVID, we have to try to figure out how to do all that virtually. So it was another challenge we had to overcome. But but yeah, we're entering that phase of, of a capital capitalization event to give us the resources to try to scale our company to a larger company. And because it's a learning model that collects information, the more information we have, the more potential there is to learn. So it's important that we grow so we can fulfill the, the original mission of the company, which was let's figure out what's the optimal number of cells and, and, and formulations of these products to give a patient the best potential for a good outcome. So that in the future one day, we'll treat a 75-year-old smoker different from a 23-year-old athlete, or we'll treat a smoker different from a non-smoker, or acute problem different from a chronic problem. This idea of customized or precision medicine, we're treating you for your problem on that day this way, based on based on evidence, based on information, not just based on a guess or a theory or whatever has kind of driven the field with, without that data in place. So that needs to grow to work. And as long as it's small, it can kind of teeter along and we may learn th some things, but the bigger it gets, the more we have to contribute to the field, to people ultimately. They're the end consumer of these, these therapies. And to, you know, to my medical colleagues and peers, so we're entering into that phase of this, which is exciting and terrifying at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> and when you talk about contributing to your peers, does that mean like contributing to medical journals? What you sure. So geez, I, there's no way you can do this alone. You have to surround yourself with good people and, and people that, that fill in. I'm not a great researcher. It's not my natural strength. I'm a good idea guy and I'm a good execution guy. If I have an idea, I can figure out how to make that idea work. That's what I'm naturally strong at. But I'm not great at the meticulous nature of clinical benchtop research. It's incredibly tedious. So what do you do? You go and get PhDs and scientists and other docs that do that well. And you try to align with them and work with them. And we're, you know, in that process of continu continuing to build those relationships. I was telling you earlier today, I, I had a phone call with the CEO of a, of a company in Israel with a $250 million market cap. That started just like we did long time ago. 
Uh, but they're doing some interesting research with an off-the-shelf type of stem cell product, which brings up another important point, important point, and that is we can't just assume that our model's right. We may prove it wrong or suboptimal or something else is better. So from a company's sustainability standpoint, especially when investment dollars start coming through your door, you have to say, I'm not going to assume I know everything because now I've got investment dollars to protect and try to get our investors a return on their investment, we need to be able to shift or pivot or modify or adapt or morph if appropriate to make this thing work. Because wow. no one has all the answers and there are lots of different different models out there that we don't know who's going to win the race. Right. So hopefully we win the race, but if we don't, we need to be prepared to align with those who are going to so to maintain the company. In addition to raising capital, you're also preparing contingencies. Not contingencies, because some mentors of mine had always said the best entrepreneurs don't have a plan B necessarily. It's that kind of all-in committed mentality, which is necessary, but but it's also uh, tunnel vision, right? So you can get burned by that. So it's a it's a it's a balance of not that there's a lot of balance in entrepreneurship, but it's a balance of being committed to your vision, but not being so focused and having so much tunnel vision that you're not open to new ideas that might change what you thought it was going to be so that you can adapt. I think I heard Elon Musk say something interesting the other day. He said, he was talking about raising money for businesses and he's raised more money than anybody. And he said, sometimes it takes a while to raise money and you as an entrepreneur risk the possibility that the time it took you to raise money, the field or the idea or the opportunity changed. And you're so focused on the opportunity that was before you raised money that now you're stuck. So you raise the money, but your idea is antiquated now. Your idea is obsolete. So I said, you have to be thinking as an entrepreneur, considering the time it takes to to raise capital in a COVID market or a tough market. And how long is that process? Like, I I don't know. It can be be 90 days or it can be a year. It's, you just don't know. Uh, And right now, cell therapies and biotech is hot because of COVID. And what happened with COVID is, you know, from vaccines, which is a biologic therapy, similar to a cellular therapy, uh, it, it refocused investment houses and investment dollars on Wall Street and places like that on the opportunity to use biologic therapies and, and refocus on the future of where do we go next. And medical technology doesn't, isn't a linear growth. It's not a slow, straight curve. It's rapid, and then it, it, it kind of hangs there for a while, plateaus, and then it's another rapid jump, and then it plateaus, and then it's another rapid jump. So it's this accelerated period of growth followed by stability. Interesting. And we think, we hope, that we're entering into one of those more accelerated periods of growth with cellular technologies and and, and biological therapies. So the drug treat problem with drug X model is changing. It's a new paradigm shift. And we talk about catching trends with entrepreneurship and how important that is. We hope we're on the cusp of a trend, but look how long it took to get to the trend. 10 years ago, the idea was premature. So I had to sustain it for 10 years, and only now we believe we're entering that period where the wow. idea starts to work. So you were waiting for this moment, essentially. Well, well, I saw it back then, but that doesn't mean anybody else did mm. or that it was right. Wow. So you can't you can't be presumptuous that you're right or you know everything, hopefully you are right. And if you are, then if you execute well, your your vision will come come to life. But but you can't make that assumption. And you have to be open to eat your ego and say, oh, no, that was wrong. 
(laughs) But that's okay. Guess what we learned? We learned it was wrong, and now we're positioned well because we're a, a, a company that can morph and pivot and shift to capitalize on the fact that we were wrong. That's not bad, necessarily. Wow. So being wrong can be useful. So we hope we're not wrong, but if we are, we'll learn from it and hopefully continue to turn that into something that creates value to our, our consumer, the people that benefit from our work. Wow. Do you have any mentors that you look to for inspiration? Sure. So, so there's uh, there's a few people that come to mind. Not not necessarily biotechnology folks. So I, I have some mentors in the business world and business sphere uh, that have nothing to do with biotechnology. Absolutely. In fact, they couldn't be more opposite. And uh, I was telling you earlier, a few years ago, I did a, uh, I got in the TV studio and did a, a little pilot project where we tested something called Entrepreneur MD, which was basically. You have a doctor who's you know Harvard trained guy who's got this entrepreneurial bug, and that's kind of interesting and unique. And and we got up and talked about topics that were relevant to a doctor entrepreneur. So it wasn't just an entrepreneur talk show; it was more about tech and science and technology and health and fitness and things like that. So uh, that was uh, done with a guy named Grant Cardone, who's a real estate guy. Uh, nothing to do with with biotechnology, but uh, I met Grant through my wife Zoe and. Uh, and he, it turns out he has a studio. And it turns out he was uh, helping entrepreneurs to, if they wanted to to promote what they were doing in a studio setting, we could get some airtime and and use that. I'd never been in front of a camera before. And, and it was a great experience. We ended up not pursuing it much further, although we could have. The tech stuff took, took stage, and I just didn't have the time to fly to Miami all the time and film. But it was a great experience, and I learned a ton about thinking in front of the camera and, and delivering a message and thinking on your feet. And it was, it was great. So, so Grant is a, an incredible self-promoter, right? The ultimate self-promoter. He's a complete nut job self-promoter. But in medicine, we're uber cautious and uh, empiric and, and uh, don't promise too much. And he's the complete antithesis of that, which was great for me because I found myself growing up in this world of don't promise too much you know, be conservative, counsel conservatively. It's bad to try to sell someone something as a patient, right? Because that doctor-patient relationship and Hippocratic Oath and so forth. But we got a business run. And in business, if you don't have any sales, you're not going to be in business very long. So I had to kind of overcome that mentality of, you know, you are held to a higher standard as a doctor to, okay, that's great. Let's use that. And let's, let's still be that as a doctor. But if people don't know about our business, Who's going to use it? How are we going to grow? And that was really hard for me to do. And he, he's the best at it. And so we talk about mentors. Go seek out a mentor who does something really well that you suck at, right? So he was, he was a good one. And I don't know him really well, but I've interacted with him. He's an author and very high-profile guy in social media. Another guy was, uh, was Ty Lopez, who's uh, – you may know Ty. Yeah. Ty's a great guy. And uh, we actually invested in a project with Ty. But again, completely the opposite of my world, this, this data-driven, you know, actually Ty's very data-driven, but, but he did things really well that I didn't uh, naturally and had to learn how. So I had a mentor there. I joined an entrepreneur group called the R-Taste Syndicate, which was led by two guys, Ed Milet and Andy Frisella. Andy's in the, uh, the uh, 
supplement industry, actually created a company called First Form, which is doing great. Andy's a great guy. And Ed was in the insurance business. So again, nothing to do with me, but it was a group of high-performing entrepreneurs that got together to, you know, to co- collaborate and network. And, and that was another thing I was terrible at, was networking. And I still continue to try to, to work on that. It's a, it's a necessary skill as an entrepreneur. You have to network and find other people that can help you see your vision through. And I wasn't good at it. So how do you do that? Force yourself to network. So I joined an entrepreneur group of about 50 entrepreneurs, some of whom made eight figures a year and some of whom were just starting. And it was an interesting mix, eclectic mix of people that uh, they'd bring speakers in and we'd have role playing and it, we'd do you know, three-day retreats and then a lot of Zoom calls and things like that. But So I did that for a year. I think mentors are very, very important and I benefited from some great mentors in my life. But I also think you can put too much stock in them. Wow. At the end of the day, you got to do the job. You got to become someone else's mentor. How do you do that? By, by making your vision come reality. It's right in those last couple chapters. Mm. Can right? you talk about yeah, right in those last couple chapters? What yeah, you, well, you had asked me earlier, do I, do I think I'm an influencer? No. And this is why. Who do you want to listen to? You want to listen to someone who's done what you want to do. Right. And, you know, if someone's become a doctor, I guess I could become a mentor and influencer to them. If someone wants to become a businessman, I don't have a $300 million company or a billion dollar company yet. I hope to one day. But, and this is one of the things I I found about being on camera when, you know, people were asking me questions and and looking to me to to be a mentor or whatever, or on social media is, uh, yeah, I I can probably help them, but I'm going to help them a lot more when I've written those last couple of chapters of the book. And Greyledge is a, a fascinating story over the 10 years it's been around. Uh, but the most important and most difficult part of Greyledge is yet to come, as difficult as it was to get to this point. And that is scaling it from a small business into a big one. And whether that goes public or becomes an acquisition opportunity for someone else, we don't know. But it's, it's the last and arguably the hardest phase of okay, you got a great idea. You proved you can make a small company. You proved you can make it profitable. You proved you can do this and that and the other thing. Now can you prove that it's scalable and you can help lots and lots of people? So the concept of, think about a doctor, right? I can help one person at a time or I can help lots and lots and lots and lots of people without, you know, without having to see them in person. Wow. And that's appealing to me as an entrepreneur and a doctor. And that's the opportunity we have with a company like Greyledge is I can help more people by not practicing medicine and I came by practicing medicine every day. Well, David, was there anything in this interview that you would like to add that you haven't added? Well, we'll see if we can write the final couple chapters uh, to be determined, right? So this is an ongoing effort. It's been a great journey. It's been a hard journey. Uh, hopefully we can see it through because it, it, it'll, you know, we talk about entrepreneurship. This will make a great entrepreneurial story if I can finish it. Uh, because literally this started out as an idea on a napkin and has run the gamut of the business cycle with one thing left to go, and that is to grow it larger. And and interestingly enough, that's what will fulfill the mission of the company, which is to learn. Larger it is, more we learn, as I said before. So, you know, I think, you know, can I help other entrepreneurs? Sure. There's tons of lessons in startups and and things I did well, and things I did really awfully. Uh, but what I really want is to, and I think what really makes an influencer, is to be able to see this this last phase, this last step. Uh, 
Because then I can say, if you're thinking about an idea on a napkin, I can relate to that. If you're in early phase startup mode, I've been there. I can relate to that. If you're in kind of growth mode, I've been there too. If you're raising money, been there. If you are in a lawsuit over a problem, I've been there. Oh, you want a $100 million company? Been there too. So my goal as an entrepreneur is to you know, take this idea that we've fostered over 10 years now and you know, now add some firepower to it and finish those last couple of chapters of the book. And then I think I can be a useful resource to other people. Wow. Well, David, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your stories with us. I really hope to see the success of you and everything you're working on. So thank I'll you. be I'll be following this story and I and I wish you success. So David, thank you. Thank you. We appreciate your uh, doing the podcast and giving us a voice to uh, let others hear what we're up to. Thank you.